You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. We're talking today about an interesting, a really interesting topic. This is about uh, the native tribes in, in Louisiana, their, their culture, their background, and, and, uh, and some of the history and some of the issues that they, uh, they face. With me is uh, David Sickey, who's a member of the, of the Cushata tribe. Uh, he's also been on the, uh, the Cushata council and has also been uh, the, the tribal chairman. And so he's... He, uh, He's seen it from all, all levels, and um, he's joining us today. Give us a little, let's sort of put a little bit of uh, background. David, tell us about where is the origin of the people that we know of as the Cushatas? Where did they begin? Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, for the invitation to join the uh, program. Glad to have you. It's a huge honor because, uh, as you know, uh, as most of our people know, that um, this month, the month of November, is the National Native American Heritage Month. And um, some of you will know that uh, in uh, uh, 1990, President George H.W. Bush um, passed a, signed and approved a joint resolution um, designating that month as an official month to celebrate the history, culture, traditions, and contributions of, uh, of the Native Americans to the United States of America. Every president since um, has been signing similar proclamations since 1994. So we're very, very proud of that fact. But the Cushatas, uh, most, uh, to answer your question, sir, uh, the Cushatas uh, have lived in Southwest Louisiana for more than a century. Um, but as you know, uh, you pointed out that we didn't start off living here. Um, and, and that story is similar uh, among many other tribal nations around the country. Um, um, they, they, their current locations were determined by warfare, encroachment, disease, and most of them migrated to other areas. And most, a lot of tribes around the country are living in areas that are not their traditional indigenous homelands. And, uh, but a little bit of uh, history about the Cushadas. Uh, after Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto, encountered a Cushata community on a Tennessee River uh, island in 1540. The Cushatas recognized that uh, the Europeans were intent on taking their land. Uh, they relocated beginning a long series of moves um, aimed at European encroachment. And so by the late 1700s, uh, the Cushatas had resettled near the convergence of the Coosa and Tallapoosa rivers in Alabama and had become part of the powerful Creek Confederacy. Um, throughout our, throughout the mo their moves, the Cushada maintained uh, our unique culture, our language, which we still speak fluently today. And although they, they joined with other tribes in the Creek Confederacy, they never gave up their separate cultural and lingual identity. And fast forward to 1797, our Influential chief Red Shoes uh, led a group of 400 followers to Spanish Louisiana. And in the spring of 1804, 
um, another group of 450 Kushadas joined them in that territory. And over the next several decades, the Kushadas moved from place to place. Uh, they crossed the Red, Sabine, and Trinity Rivers. And, and, and that was an effort to remain in neutral areas between French, Spanish, American, and Mexican territories. Um, in the 1880s, a group of approximately 300 Kushadas settled at Bayou Blue, north of Elton, um, and that's where the tribe's current location is at to this day. All right. Now, the other, so the Kushadas are federally recognized uh, as being a tribe, and that's important in terms of support that you have, and uh, we'll talk more about that. What, what are the other federally recognized tribes in Louisiana? So in our home state of Louisiana, there are four, a total of four federally recognized tribes. The Cushada being one of them, the Gina Band of Choctaw Indians. Okay, now Gina is in, uh, in North Louisiana. And so without going into my, this, I assume this was what a group of Choctaws that settled in, uh, of, um, in Louisiana. Okay, and so it's the Gina Bill. Okay, so that's two. Right, the Chittimacha tribe of Louisiana based in Sherrington, Louisiana. Right. And lastly, but not least, we have the Tunica Biloxi tribe of Louisiana located in Marksville, Louisiana. Okay, and so, so those are the four now. In addition to that, sir, if I can interject one right. second. In addition to the four federally recognized tribes, uh, let's also, it's important to note that there are another, there are over 14 other uh, tribes that are state recognized. Um, I don't know the exact count as of today, but again, in addition to the four federally recognized tribes that call Louisiana their home, there are over 14 other state recognized tribes uh, here in our state. And, and what and, would be some, I'm not going to ask the name all 14, but what would be some of those? Uh, I'm not familiar with the Clifton Choctaws, I believe, are okay. one of them. Um, again, I don't want to speak to the so state. So these are little subgroups. Now, when you meet like with somebody from the Chittimacha or, or from the Tunica Biloxi, is there much difference in the tribes in terms of language and, and culture? And like, like is, is the language pretty much the same? As far as languages are concerned, uh, each tribe has its own language. There are some similarities, but again, it's, it's important to remember that each tribal community and group will have their own separate distinct language that's specific to that tribe. And so I'm very proud to report that the Cushadas are the only Louisiana tribe that still speaks its language fluently to this day. So if, if, if our guests and friends and neighbors travel to Elton, Louisiana, you'll still be able to hear the ancient language of our elders and ancestors being spoken fluently in Elton. Um, even as of right now. And uh, again, that's something that we're very proud of because as you know, it's a fact that, uh, you know, we, uh, in, throughout the course of our history, there were a lot of external uh, interactions that, uh, that took place. Um, whoever was fighting over the North American continent, uh, there was a lot of external factors affecting our, our the well-being and, and vitality of our people. But, but again, for thousands of years, this, this language, this ancient language, uh, when in, in our language you would say Kosati, um, that is still being, still being uh, spoken fluently in Elton. Do you speak the language? I do, I do. I speak it very fluently. 
Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting, even in tribal government, when I was serving in tribal government, which began in 2003, uh, our council meetings uh, would be conducted in, in Kushara. So, and you know, again, uh, we, we use it in everyday life and uh, it's very important because language is part of our identity, much like every other group uh, around the world. Um, well, would you mind saying, so? how about saying it's a beautiful day today? <laughs> how about if I thank you for uh, letting me on this program? That's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, Wow, okay. Well, it seems like a pretty wordy language. I mean, it, it took a lot of words to say that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it is. It's a very, I, I, I think it's, you know, I believe that, you know, our language is, uh, it, is beautiful. It, it, it's rich in culture and traditions. And uh, what I just said was that thanks for inviting me on the program. And I hope our audience learns uh, something a little bit about uh, Native Americans. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there. So I'm sure somewhere along the line, there's some professor somewhere that's researched those languages. Do we know what the origin of those? Are they like back from Asia, or or, or where those languages evolved from? I, I'm not a um, a linguist by training uh, by by any means, um, but we have had linguists. Interestingly enough. We've had linguists visit the tribe and the Kushada community, and they have uh, for, for decades, for the last several decades. Even to this day, we have students that, are, um, that want to uh, study uh, languages and, and, and linguistics as, and, and become practitioners in that. They still, to this day, visit the tribe and study the language, the ancient language of the Kushadas. And interestingly enough, um, and uh, the, the published reports of these linguists will tell you that, uh, that the Kashada language has survived in its you know, uh, pure form, in its pure ancient form in certain cases. Some words and phrases and dialect are still in its ancient form. So again, when the Kushada, some of the phrases and words and dialect being spoken uh, by the Kashada, you can let me take you back and imagine when you drive to Elton and listen to the language being spoken in Allen Parish, just 2.3 miles north of Elton, when you hear the, the words and the phrases and the sounds coming out of the mouths of the Kushada, imagine going back to 1540, some of the same uh, words and phrases and dialect and sounds would be the same ones that, would, that Hernando de Soto would have heard in 1540. Now, how was the language being preserved is there an effort to teach it to the kids is it taught in school or is it just outside the outside the classroom or, or just in the in the home the the Kashada language is an endangered language um and i believe less than 50 percent of the 967 members of our tribe are fluent speakers and uh and that's you know there's several different things that are uh, you know have played a part uh, in that, as far as the language being endangered, I mean, um, a lot of our tribe members over the last few decades have married outside of the tribal community. Some of our tribe members have left for job or educational opportunities and they reside uh, out of state. So there's a few things that have contributed to the, you know, the language being endangered. But 
for thousands of years, the Kushada language was never written like many other uh, tribal and indigenous languages around the globe, not just here in America. So it's been passed down orally for, for many generations. And so, but in the last decade or so, I'm pleased to report that aggressive efforts have been made to preserve, protect, and document the Kushada language um, before it disappears. Um, obviously, we're going to make, we're, we've taken an aggressive posture and approach to make sure that it doesn't disappear. And those efforts have actually been uh, very promising. Uh, we established a Kushada language committee made up of elders. Uh, we've, we've received grant funding from different organizations, including the federal government, to come up with uh, digital dictionaries, to come up with a dictionary, to come up with teaching materials and curriculum for our early childhood education programs. And, uh, and also, we even, under my administration, uh, we even, or prior to my administration, I had a hand, I spearheaded the effort to create a Kushada Language Day. So, to, you know, that's a day that was set aside by proclamation to celebrate, honor, and recognize the, the, uh, uh, the, the Kushada language um, in our tribe. How was the language written? Is it written in, in symbols? Or the Kushada language right now is, uh, has been written down in its phonetic form. So, you know, uh, and, and it's, it's, sometimes it's challenging. There are certain word, uh, sounds in the Kushada language that don't uh, match up or coincide with the English alphabet. So uh, the elders of our community working with our younger generations and youth um, have done a wonderful job of uh, translating it and spelling it and documenting it phonetically. So. And again, I'm pleased to report that those efforts uh, have been very promising and have uh, been very fruitful as far as the outcomes of those efforts. So if you were the place, there'd be you, there'd be someone there, there'd be someone from the Chittimacha and someone from the Tunabuluxi, and all of you would talk in your native language to each other. Could you all understand each other? Probably not. No, sir. Okay. Um, you know, I think, the, I mean, it's amazing that you've been able to preserve it this long. And I think of the struggle just with the Cajun language um, that there's been. And, and, and Cajun, I guess it's, it's, it's more than mainstream. And so you have things like Codafil and you have a, um, songs and language being spoken and all that. And so it has some things to help, but it's still difficult to preserve, to preserve that with assimilation. So it's amazing that you've done that. Absolutely. We're very proud of the fact that, again, it, it's the language is still being spoken fluently in our tribe. And, and I'm well aware of, uh, of the challenges that the Cajun uh, uh, citizens of our wonderful state have faced as far as uh, passing on the, uh, the French to the younger generations. It's a challenge for all people to preserve your, your language, which contributes to your identity. And so I'm very proud of that fact, just considering um, what has happened over the course of our history to erase, banish, or undo native culture, history, traditions, and languages. Are the next generation of the younger ones, are, um, are they staying in the area? Are they just moving out? I mean, is, um, are, are they the thing at the home base? Uh, the, most of our Kashada members live in and around Elton and the surrounding parishes, such as Allen Parish, uh, Jeff Davis Parish, Calcasieu Parish, 
but we do have some uh, tribe members that live around the state and we have approximately uh, 180 or so that live around the country. So we have a little, it's a mixed bag of tribal citizens um, uh, as, you know, in terms of where they reside. So, and, you know, it's, 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 it's a challenge to keep them at home uh, because obviously we can't mandate or require that they stay around their tribal community. So, but it's good to see some that are staying home and close to the area, that's fine. And if they want to branch, uh, explore and uh, you know, pursue opportunities, educational or career opportunities around the country, that's fine too. Um, even those that move outside of the immediate tribal community, we're, I'm proud to uh, report that they are still entitled to the same services and programs and assistance that the local members of the Coshada tribe would receive, such now, as healthcare and education and social service support, et cetera. Now, a quirk in federal law allows, and we haven't worked this out, it was really, I guess, kind of a genius, but, but allows a federally recognized tribe if it has a, a reservation uh, in an area to be able to operate a casino. So um, how's that working out? Right, so under federal law, um, tribes um, are authorized um, and permitted to operate gaming operations, um, business development for revenue generation. Um, and we have, the Coshada tribe has operated the largest land-based casino in the state of Louisiana since 1995. So we're approaching 30 years of business excellence and success and I'm very, very proud, sir, to admit that because of that, we prior to COVID, we were able to employ 2,300 people under our, under our payroll. A small tribe that numbers less than 1,000 people in rural Elton, Louisiana, in rural Allen Parish, was able to provide employment opportunities for 2,300 people. So when Ronald Reagan signed off on the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, authorizing and permitting and making it federal law to, uh, to allow tribes around the country to open gaming operations for revenue generation. It was, I don't know if he envisioned the economic and socioeconomic socio prosperity that Native Americans would experience. Not only that, the beneficiaries of the Cushada success story are non-Indians as well. Over 95% over of our total workforce were non-Indians, and I'm very proud of that fact. Prior to COVID, our workforce came from 18 Louisiana parishes. Well, you know, I, I've kind of a personal witness to this and that the, uh, during our Katrina evacuation, I was in Marksville, uh, where of course you have the, uh, the Paragon Casino, which is operated by the Tunica Biloxi. So I, I saw it several times, including it, at one time, it had the, the only hotspot anywhere, uh, anywhere nearby. And to see what that casino has done, especially in an area that's not that well developed to begin with. I mean, you know, to see a white tablecloth restaurant there and, and to see the skills that people are developing uh, in terms of just working with people. Um, from what I saw, it was doing a lot of economic good. And I think a lot of people would have just had to have left the community were it not for that. That, that's, that, seem, that is very familiar. That story, what you described, is very familiar to the tribes that are operating gaming operations. 
and to those jurisdictions that those tribes reside in. Um, again, they're making economic uh, headwinds and creating its own economic environment, which leads to, as you know, uh, social prosperity as well for those entire regions. They're affecting regional socioeconomic matters. Um, and in addition to that, let's remember that the primary aim and goal and purpose of the Indian Gaming Regu Regulatory Act under Ronald Reagan was designed for uh, economic self-sufficiency for tribes. It was a tool and a way for tribes to gain revenue, to be deployed and allocated into areas such as tribal healthcare, tribal social service programs, tribal elder and youth programs, tribal education programs, tribal infrastructure, tribal economic development, and so forth. And I'm proud to report that many tribes, uh, especially on the education front, many of our tribal youth have taken advantage of those tribal education funds that have been generated by this wonderful business operation in Kinder, Louisiana, Cushada Casino Resort. And a lot of our tribal youth and children are, are obtaining some advanced degrees. Um, and we're very, very proud of that fact because as you know, what we're doing is that here's a community, here's a tribal community that's deploying and, and, and investing into their human capital, into the next generation. And that contributes to the uh, vitality and the success and the uh, health and well-being of an entire community for many more generations to come. And by nature, these are all in rural areas where were it not for something big and explosive like that, there'd really be nothing to do. Uh, that there'd be nowhere. I mean, I guess you could farm something, you could grow sweet potatoes or something, but there's not much of a future in there. I mean, that's not something that's going to excite the next generation about the future. And so I think it created uh, that activity. Uh, I will say that the times I went there, there were not many people that I recognized as belonging to the tribe that I saw. Okay, or, or, or would have, but that's part of, I guess, providing work for a lot of other people also. The, um, anyway, um, so it's just a, a fascinating, I knew what was, I, I could see where this was working economically one day when I'm driving through and I passed the Paragon and hit a theater and the theater had a marquee and the marquee said, coming soon, Wayne Newton, okay? Now this is like, like the ultimate Las Vegas act. And I'm thinking, geez, Wayne Newton's playing Marksville now? Okay. <laughs> and so you can kind of see the impact that, uh, that, it, was, uh, that it was having. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there any kind of, isn't there some sort of a get together that the tribes have like once a year to, uh, like to do ceremonies and dances, that sort of thing? Or? The, uh, some tribes, including Cachadas, We'll have their own internal programs that's specific and focused to our internal tribal membership only. In addition to that, um, the Cushadas uh, and, and other tribes will do external relations and activities, whether it be jointly or otherwise, um, for the community, for the surrounding communities that the public is invited to attend. For example, prior to COVID, the Cushadas, uh, the Louisiana Cushadas, hosted one of the largest powwow uh, gatherings in North America. And it's, a, it, it's an opportunity, it was an annual event that attracted uh, Native American nations and dancers and singers and drummers from all across America uh, into Canada as well. And it, it's, it was a, it's a huge 
community family celebration. Um, and also it's a chance to showcase and highlight uh, the, the Native American traditions and culture and share it with the broader non-Indian audiences and public. Um, and also thirdly, it, uh, it impacted the state's um, uh, tourism uh, efforts as well. So there, was a, there, were, there were a variety of reasons and benefits to hosting the, one, of the, one of North America's largest powwow events in Kinder, Louisiana every year. Go ahead. And prior to leaving office, uh, the hope was to um, clear the hurdles of the COVID-19 restrictions and, and, uh, and protocols and to reintroduce that again, to, uh, to reopen it up back to the public. And from what I understand in talking to the members of my tribe, the Cushada Powwow, the annual event will make a return sometime in 2022, but I'm not privy to the uh, exact details of that, and I don't want to announce anything prematurely anyway. So um, that's the hope. Um, just like every uh, every aspect in American society, and uh, um, we're trying to get back to normal, and uh, we hope to host that celebration at the tribe um, sometime in 2022. All right. So 2022. Did COVID hit hard? COVID was absolutely. Uh, devastating and took uh, a, a huge toll on the Native American population in America. Uh, uh, there were two segments or two to three segments uh, in, in, uh, in demographics in America that, that took a heavy toll. Um, the African Americans, the, uh, the Latino communities, and the Native American communities took a, took a heavy toll with COVID-19. And you know, minority groups in America have, you know, uh, pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, they have high mortality rates to begin with, uh, even prior to COVID, uh, you know, issues such as, you know, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. So a lot of their, uh, a lot of minority groups, uh, uh, their immune systems are compromised. And uh, so, as you can imagine, sir, the COVID-19 uh, took a heavy toll um, on the Native American population. Some tribes took a bigger hit. For example, the Navajos in Southwestern United States come to mind. The Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians in Mississippi took a heavy toll from COVID. So, you know, it varied from tribe to tribe. And, uh, but I was most proud of the fact that tribes were able to react very swiftly and aggressively. And in certain cases, uh, resources from the federal government actually um, came through very efficiently. Um, so um, tribes responded very aggressively to that because as you know, tribes, every single life matters in general, but tribes are very community oriented and family oriented. So one loss is, is way too many when, you, when you're talking about Native American lives. Was there any culturally based resistance? Like people say, well, you know, we don't want a vaccine that's not, that's not, within, that's not within our culture to do that. We did hear and uh, experience some of that debate going on, but that's just like any other community, not just specific to Native Americans. Um, here, in, here in America, we have uh, lively debates about every single topic and matter that you can think of. So 
uh, we did have we did experience some level of that, but to a very limited extent. Uh, for the most part, we had I'm proud to report that we had very high six, uh, uh, rates of vaccinations um, among our tribal people and communities. You know, that's one thing. You know, when people look back at the whole COVID period, nobody can say that there was a problem with availability. That anybody who wanted a vaccination could have gotten it. All right. And there was no cost to it. And so it, it was the opposite problem. It was getting to take it. Okay. Okay. It was there, but just getting to take it. That was the problem. Right. And that's the approach that we took, like many other tribal governments and the federal government and state governments. That's the approach that we took. We our job was to make sure that we sourced it and that it arrived at the tribe efficiently and swiftly. And that number three, that we offered the uh, the the vaccinations. Obviously, we cannot mandate or force anyone to do or take anything. But again, I'm, I'm like I stated a second ago, I'm very proud to report that our vaccination rates were very high uh, within the Kashada tribe. Yeah. What happens to those who decide, and this happens in all cultures, they want to leave. I mean, you know, they, they want to leave the area and they want to strike out on their own and go somewhere and, you know, go to New York City and something like that. Uh, what happens to those people? Are they able to assimilate okay, or is there any, or do they stumble across any prejudice? Or um, that's a very good question um, and a very uh, important topic. Um, we've come so far as far as uh, equality and diversity and inclusion, and having a seat at the table um, and integration in, in, into American society at all levels, rural and suburban. Um, but yet we still see the last remaining remnants of, of just prejudice, animosity, racism that does percolate to the top sometimes. And every circumstance and experience is different for different tribes and different members of, uh, of the Native American community, depending on where they're at and what the circumstances may be. So, but for the most part, from what I understand, um, again, um, you know, the awareness that has been uh, created and the education that has been uh, done throughout the, the last couple of decades or so has brought us a lot further down the road in terms of, uh, you know, uh, reconciliation, uh, mutual understanding and respect, etc. But just like every other person that chooses to move anywhere, there's a period of, um, of uh, you know, uh, establishing a comfort level and uh, you know, just integrating into whatever uh, environment that you choose to go to. So, but for the most part, from what I understand, tribal people and members of the Kashada tribe that move off to other areas, whether it be around the state or around the country, or in certain cases around the world, we do have some tribal members that reside elsewhere uh, besides the United States. From what I understand, uh, their experience has been, you know, a uh, good and and uh, uh, and not as challenges challenging as it was for um, the the previous generation, like my father and my mother, who are still alive today. They have stories of just um, of just uh, being rejected by society, uh, being told that uh, they can't speak their language, etc. So we've come a long way, sir, to answer your question. So, you know, it, uh, interacting with, uh, with the broader communities and the broader world at large is a little bit better for this generation than it was uh, for my mother and father's generation. And I think there's some people that have uh, 
seen some political advantage to at least claiming some sort of uh, Indian blood somewhere in there too. And so that it just makes you more of a, a diverse American, I guess. It does. I, uh, to me, I think that uh, the fact that we have a month dedicated to Native American culture, traditions, languages, and uh, contributions is, is a wonderful thing. And uh, I always tell people that, you know, you know, we should protect diversity and uh, celebrate difference. Um, and that, you know, people should also remember that diversity, in my view, and in my judgment, uh, strengthens and enriches. Um, in my mind, it doesn't weaken or divide, um, you know, and on the contrary, I think we should all leverage it to create a society that is composed of interlocking non-identical parts. That's who we are. Uh, that's the story of Louisiana. That's the story of America. And then I think, um, you know, uh, policies and interactions and dialogue and debates that are, that encourage diversity, um, I think people will find that a diverse society is actually far greater and uh, more robust than the sum of its non-identical parts. And that's the view that I take. The, um, by the way, we're talking to David Sickey, who's a, uh, a past co-chair of the, of the Cushata trial. Now, now he has his own business. He's a CNO of Sickey Global Strategies. And you do a lot of work with that with developing communities and Absolutely. So right now, um, as of June 2021, um, after, after leaving uh, elected office, um, I served for a total of 18 years. I'm an 18-year veteran of tribal government. I started, uh, I formed and launched uh, my uh, own consulting firm dedicated to business and economic development and community development. I'm also advising uh, uh, a few entities already on issues and matters uh, devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion matters. Um, I'm speaking to some tribes around the country about tribal governance, administration, and policy making. Um, and uh, also, I'm not just focusing on uh, tribal specific um, development and, 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 uh, and advice and counsel. Uh, the, the experiences that I have had in the past and that I've accumulated over the, uh, over the course of 18 years, you know, the, the skill sets that I have and the experiences that I've gained, that I've had the privilege of uh, experiencing, can also be applied to the non-Indian world too, uh, and, and which is what I'm doing. There's uh, non-Indian entities and individuals that, are, that have contacted me to, to uh, advise them on different uh, areas such as uh, uh, business development, economic development. And I'm working with some uh, business associates from uh, uh, foreign countries as well uh, that are looking to enter the US marketplace for uh, their products. So it's, it's a, it's, I have an eclectic range of uh, diverse skill sets that can benefit um, our state's economy and that could complement uh, what we're trying to do in the United States. Uh, to me, I believe an economic recovery will lead into uh, social um, uh, stability and progress as well. So that's what I intend to do. I just don't want to put my years of experience and my vast network that I've uh, amassed over 18 years on the shelf. I think it can be very beneficial sure. to, my home, to my home, to my tribe, and to my state, and to my country. 
sounds like something with a with a great potential. The um, on, a, on a lower level, I was just thinking that uh, during the summer, the um, we took a trip to the uh, out west to like the canyon area and in Arizona and Nevada and, and Utah. And um, for part of it, we were in an area that was like Navajo land. They got a, a huge amount of land and a lot of towns in there. And you just got to talk with a few of them and either as tour guides or people like that. And there's one word that they really tease we white people for, okay? And it was done good naturedly, okay? Right, right. But, 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 but they tease us for us. And that was the use of the word how, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, so you people always want to say how when you see us, and so, so we definitely didn't do that, okay? Um, but it was <laughs> there's, uh, right. There's uh, you know, the average public and citizen should know that uh, uh, there should be an attempt to kind of educate yourself and brief yourself on some a little bit of cultural competency as far as it relates to Native Americans when you do plan to uh, visit uh, a Native American tribe or a Native American community. There are some. Um, aspects of, uh, of, 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 of language and customs that come into play that and, and in certain cases you want to avoid saying things or doing things and and the best advice I give is that uh, you know what just ask if it's appropriate. <laughs> but we'll talk about this and I noticed that you use the occasionally the word Indian so in, in some circumstances it's okay to say Indian? I've heard, uh, again, it's going to matter um, uh, depending on what tribe and uh, tribal nation or tribal community that you're in. But primarily what you'll find in here is that uh, Native American, American Indian, those are the most two acceptable uh, uh, and prevalent terms that uh, are used um, when describing the indigenous people of North America. Does it mean anything to you that the Atlanta Braves won the World Series? I have no comment on that, sir. No comment. Okay. I, I, I don't even watch baseball. Okay. Um, I just wanted to qualify because people would know if they know anything about Louisiana history that in Northeast Louisiana, there's this area called Poverty Point. And Poverty Point was an ancient settlement by, uh, it was people, I guess, from Asia who moved in. But, but these people, the people who settled Poverty Point, who were sometimes referred to as, uh, as Indians or indigenous people, these would have preceded um, like the current tribes, wouldn't they? I mean, these are really an ancient people. Right, 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 right. It was a uh, poverty point is located in North Louisiana in Delhi, Louisiana, which is in northeastern Louisiana. It's it's a wonderful site that I encourage everyone to visit. By the way, it's 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 a hidden jewel in a in a hidden gem, and a in a in a huge asset, a significant asset to the state of Louisiana. And as you know, sir, uh, it, it was re uh, recently designated as a World Heritage Site, which is a uh, United Nations program. And that was done under the leadership um, of uh, Lieutenant, uh, former Lieutenant Governor Darden, Jay Darden, by the way. Um, again, it's, it's, I recently had the opportunity to visit that site uh, just a few weeks ago. I brought my two sons, Max and Miles. Uh, we drove uh, to Poverty Point and uh, enjoyed a personal tour by the wonderful park guides um, that, uh, that, that work there. But it's an ancient site that they really, it's so old that they really don't have an idea of how old it is, to be honest with you, which is quite remarkable to even think of that. It just blows your mind in my opinion. But 
but it was uh, a site that, that had been continually inhabited for centuries, for thousands of years. And they're still finding so much material and artifacts uh, from the individuals that uh, visited the site or that lived in and around the area of the site. And uh, this was a major hub for many tr uh, tribal group or indigenous groups in North America. They're finding material there underground that, uh, that originated from North America way, you know, in se several states away. Um, and again, it's very fascinating. And it also demonstrates the fact that to me, my, one of my takeaways after visiting that site is that, you know, oftentimes uh, Native Americans or indigenous peoples are, you know, are often, uh, you know, referred to in the past tense as if they existed and no longer exist in, in the 21st century. And I, I've always had, uh, you know, a, a problem with that because, I mean, as you know, you know, tribes uh, have survived. They are thriving. They are dynamic communities and tribal nations in certain cases. Um, they're not only, uh, uh, you know, uh, contributing to their own uh, uh, sustainability internally, but they're also contributing to their, you know, regional, you know, uh, uh, neighbors as well. So, you know, we're not relics of the past, um, you know, and, but Poverty Point, to, to come back to my point, demonstrates the fact, and you can see it firsthand and learn from it firsthand, that tribes were not primitive, you know, as we were, you know, led to believe or sometimes taught in our textbooks. Tribes were very advanced in terms of economics, community, uh, trade and commerce. They had very uh, complex systems of trade and commerce, and they had, they formed relationships, and they were excellent at diplomacy, etc. And uh, there's uh, there's also been uh, uh, as far as uh, coastal tribes are concerned, for example, coastal tribes were very uh, good engineers, and they they knew about flood control before the Army Corps of Engineers was even a thought in our minds. And so again. The poverty point reveals and demonstrates for a fact that tribes were not primitive people living in North America and wandering aimlessly. So again, I encourage everyone to visit poverty point. Yeah, they were very, uh, they were, they were advanced for their time. They were, they were absolutely. And those earthworks will, will tell you the amount of uh, organization it took to complete those earth, earthen mounds. Uh, that were just, uh, you know, towering, uh, you know, above the trees at one. And the, the mounds demonstrate the fact that it took a lot of organizational skill and project management skills to be able to coordinate and orchestrate that, that, that many people and to achieve um, uh, what they wanted to achieve in terms of, you know, engineering uh, their communities and the land in which they lived. But, you know, the, the other part of the story of some of these ancient cultures is that they disappeared. And it's not fully known why they went away. Right, you do have certain cases where indigenous groups and peoples in North America and around the world were, were wiped off the earth for, some re for one reason or another. Well, the Mayans, for example, uh, uh, had that, you know, I think that thing they think it might be agriculture or uh, usually it's something that has to do with the 
with right. the earth. I mean, with the soil, right. the, the, in the environment, and the in the in the uh, you know the climate. Climate uh, in certain cases may have played a part in in the, in the disappearance of some of the groups, indigenous groups around the world. So uh, there's different variables and factors that can you know that uh, experts um, are leaning towards. But uh, I'm I'm just thankful that. Despite all of that, you know, which occurred to other indigenous groups and, and tribes around the country and around the world, that the Kushadas are still thriving and uh, very vibrant um, in the 21st century. Yeah. Okay, well, before we go, let me ask you, do you have, uh, I mean, you speak glowingly of the Kushada, do you have any, is there some idea, some ambition, something you'd like to, like to, you'd like to see happen uh, to the Kushadas? Or? I mean, just to kind of begin summarizing and summing it up, uh, you know, today's ind indigenous communities and organizations are uh, seeking to improve infrastructure, so social and economic conditions, and to meet those community needs, sir, uh, they, they must balance financial and operational stability, um, as well as plan for sustainable growth. You know, sustainability is a huge buzzword here in America and around the world right now. And with, but they have to do it with preserving values, culture, and a traditional way of life. So that's the challenge for the modern day tribal chairman, the tribal council, tribal nation, and tribal communities across the country and around the world. Sure. They, they have to find a balance and, uh, you know, they, uh, they have to manage difficult times by dramatically improving financial and operational controls and financial performance and diversifying into other areas. Um, and so in, in addition to that, you know, we're still, like I said earlier during our interview, there's, we're still trying to overcome, you know, you know, underrepresentation and, you know, you know, Native Americans have been marginalized for years. So we, we still have a lot, way, uh, a lot more work to be done in those areas. Well, I wanted to mention, ask you quickly about an issue that you mentioned that it's, uh, I don't think it affects the Kashas particularly, but nationwide, that there have been problems with missing people, uh, missing women, and and uh, or some that shown up murdered, and, and I know there's been some looking up, and it, and it, it, it's hard to find any any link. I mean, it, it, it's hard to find the complete story of what happened. Right. So the the issue of MMIWG is one of the uh, a significant uh, area of concern for Native Americans and tribal citizens here in our country. Okay, uh, it's spelled out MMW, it's missing. MMIWG is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Okay. And that's actually the acronym to, uh, to sure. short, the shorter version that, uh, and it's one of the most underestimated, uh, misunderstood and wholly unnerving crises of our time in the United States of America. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it's my, the statistics are mind boggling right now, but just to kind of put into perspective the you know, in, in July, 2010, uh, when he signed the Tribal Law and Order Act, President Obama stated, it was President Obama at the time, when one in three Native American women will be raped in their lifetimes, that is an assault on our national conscience. It is an affront to our shared humanity. And he, President Obama goes on to say that it is something that we cannot allow to continue. Tragically, it not only continues, the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls crisis has actually escalated. 
So again, it's just the, the, the statistics are staggering. And uh, um, the, the uh, you know, it's a, the way I describe it, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls matter right now in the United States is a humanitarian crisis, unlike anything that we've seen before. Um, and for example, sir, let me put this into perspective. In 15 years of conflict in Iraq, the U.S. has suffered 4,541 fatalities. Yet in 2016 alone, there were 5,712 reported MMIWG cases in the U.S. So for over a decade, the United States Department of Justice has estimated that American Indian women are around 2.5 times more likely to be victims of sexual assault when compared to the general population. One in three Native American women will be raped in their lifetimes. Right. If that kind of puts things into perspective yeah. for you, it, 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 uh, it's almost... Are there any cases where there's been a resolution where they found out what happened and who did it? I mean, have we learned anything about who's committing these crimes? Right. Um, it's, you know, I can absolutely right. Some cases have been investigated fully and properly. Uh, for the most part, sir, it's unfortunate uh, the, uh, that the fact is that most cases are underreported or not reported or not investigated at all, or if it is, it's very uh, poorly done. Um, and justice is, you know, never quite sufficient or adequate for Native American people in general. Um, among the general population of American Indian women, 67% of rapes suffered by Native women are committed by non-Natives. 80% um, of sex crimes on reservations are committed by non-Natives. And according to, to the uh, U.S. Department of Justice, 86% of all reported sex crimes against Native women are perpetrated by non-Natives. And is part of the problem a belief that because they live on a reservation or an Indian area that, that maybe the jurisdiction doesn't apply there so that the, the outside government doesn't have to deal with it? Well, there are several factors that go into the, uh, that are playing into this and exasperating and uh, uh, making this uh, ep uh, you know, epidemic uh, almost overwhelming. Um, a lack of effective cooperation uh, present presently exists, um, not only between law enforcement agencies, but also between tribal nations um, uh, due to the status quo of what I call, uh, what we call jurisdictional paralysis, which you referred to a second ago. Um, and there's, you know, the fact is that inter-jurisdictional cooperation is essential in this. A lot of times there's no exchange or, or interaction between tribal and non-tribal law enforcement agencies or entities. Um, there's a lack of uh, information exchange. There needs to be better data collection as far as reports or investigations. Um, or prosecutions are concerned. There just, there, there just needs to be better uh, mutual and interagency and intertribal cooperation. So uh, until that happens, which there's some states are making progress on that front as far as information exchange, um, jurisdictional uh, um, awareness and cooperation, until that changes, I mean, this problem, we're, we're not going to see it turn around 
quickly, as quickly as we want it to. But it's going to take uh, federal legislation, which there is some on the table right now. And with that, we, we're going to need funding for tribal law enforcement agencies, tribal court systems, and also non-Native uh, non, uh, American law enforcement agencies as well. So it's going to require a robust approach to stop this from escalating any further and also to begin reversing these horrendous trend lines. We, we, have, to, we have to get a handle on it. And it's going to take cooperation between tribes and non-tribal people and organizations and entities to do so. And the problem so far has not been that great in Louisiana, but it is a problem nationwide. But if it's a problem nationwide, it, there's no reason to believe it won't come to, to Louisiana. Right. Um, unfortunately, during the course of my advocacy and work and support for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls matters and issues, uh, we discovered that uh, the Louisiana Department of Health and Vital Statistics and the coroner's offices uh, categorize Native Americans as other. So it's unfortunate that there are no adequate or, you know, the data sets don't exist for us to examine to determine the severity of MMIWG cases among the tribal citizens that call Louisiana home. So, but again, um, the view and the approach that I take is that we're not here to point fingers. We're not here to dis disparage or embarrass anyone. The idea is to share information, to shed light on it and work together to, uh, to find uh, common ground and to find common solutions to this common challenge here. And I guess, you know, if anything's gonna change, if anything's gonna happen to help that you're in a position to be the guy to make it happen. I mean, not just you, but you're in a key position. Um, I will continue advocating for those issues and, uh, and matters that I, uh, that I uh, was uh, aggressive in. Um, I'm passionate about this one particular issue because it, it, it's just a massive, it's gonna take a lot of massive coordination to turn this, uh, this humanitarian crisis around. And in the process, let me just state the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's all about, it, it, it's an issue of humanity here. It's not just specific to Native Americans, but it's about public safety for all the citizens of Louisiana sure. and also the citizens of uh, this wonderful country uh, that we all call home. Okay. Well, thank you for making us aware. Thanks for your good work on this. Um, just to end this on a lighter note, okay, because, uh, <laughs> Uh, I know our listener can't tell. This is uh, this recording is being made. I'm in New Orleans. You're in Washington. You're in the Watergate Hotel. Correct? I am. <laughs> so, so, so we've been talking from the Watergate. Would, right. you mind, would you mind telling the listeners what's written on the back of your room card at the, at the Watergate Hotel? Well, um, I am. Uh, I'm conducting this interview uh, live from the uh, the infamous Watergate Hotel. In, in Washington, D.C., which everyone is familiar with, most likely. We've read it and learned about it in school, and there's many documentaries committed to <laughs> what occurred here at Watergate under President Richard Nixon. Um, but on the back of the, this room card, the, these, electron, these famous uh, electronic room cards that many hotels use, um, 
that has replaced a traditional key. Sure. On the back of it, it says, no need to break in. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> David, thank little, you for A little bit of dark humor there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we have to laugh so and, and smile so we don't cry, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's been really um, educational. It's and, been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.